0: john Layton wilson the foreign missionary from southern presbyterian worthies by john miller wells in the year 1734 a colony of presbyterians came to south carolina most of them were scotch-irish though one family at least seems to have been of welsh stock they settled along black river in williamsburg district The names of many of those families are honored names in the Presbyterian Church of the South. Witherspoon, Frierson, Gordon, James, Wilson. The blood of all these flowed in the veins of John Layton Wilson. Sturdy folk they were, who feared God and naught else. Two of Marion's finest partisan leaders bore the names of James and Gordon, and many of his bravest soldiers were from this stock godly folk they were worshiping god reading his word keeping his day and bringing up their children in the nurture and admonition of the lord hospitable folk they were the latch string always on the outside william wilson john leighton wilson's father married jane james her grandfather was major john james marion's peerless leader of scouts her father was captain john james one of Marion's bravest captains. Dr. H. C. DeBose says, quote, J. Leighton Wilson was a Wilson in humility of soul, simplicity of life, loveliness of character, and consecration to the church. But it was the James blood coursing through his veins that made him a Joshua to the Southern church in her days of poverty and desolation. End quote. To William Wilson and his wife was born on March 25th, 1809, a son. They named him John Layton. His home was on a farm in the lowlands of the coastal plain of the Atlantic. The country is level, interspersed with swamps through which flow sluggish creeks and rivers brown in color from the juniper and cypress trees. The higher ground was covered with great forest of longleaf pine, one of the most beautiful of trees. The land when drained is fertile, and the people with their slaves lived in comfort though not in wealth. In a frame house shaded by the beautiful oaks of that region he grew up. This home was called Salem. Family worship was the daily rule in that home. Here he learned the catechism, learned to obey those in authority, and learned to speak the truth and do his duty. When the Sabbath came, he went with the family to old Mount Zion Church, where his father was a ruling elder. There he had been dedicated to God in baptism by his parents in infancy. There he heard the gospel preached in purity and power. And there, at an early age, he gave his heart to Christ and took for himself the vows previously taken for him by his parents. On the farm he learned how to work. In the forest, he learned how to walk far and shoot straight. And in the streams, he learned how to swim and fish. Like every other southern boy, he learned early how to ride. And with it all, he grew strong and symmetrical, broad of shoulder and deep of chest, tall so that in mature manhood, he measured six feet two inches in height. Nor was his mind neglected. First, as a child, he went to the old log schoolhouse in the pines, then to a school at Springville, and finally, in academic preparation, to science school at Winsboro. And so thorough was his preparation that when he went to college, he was able to enter the junior class. What college should he attend was the serious question. South Carolina College was then cursed with Cooper's infidelity. So young John, 18 years of age, was sent far north to Schenectady, New York, to attend Union College under the presidency of the great and good Dr. E. Knott. Here, he studied well and stood high. J.B. Adger from his own state was his warm friend. Long walking tours through the mountains were made during his summer vacation. He had charge of a Sunday school that occupied much of his attention on the Sabbath. He consulted Dr. Knott as to his life work, for he was already thinking of the ministry and was advised by him to attend Union Seminary in Virginia, which already, under Dr. John Holt Rice, was doing fine work in that year of our Lord, 1829. However, he graduated and returned home with no well-defined plans of his own for the future, but with a God who had some well-defined ones for him, of which we shall see later. Over at Salem Church, the neighboring church to the east, His uncle, Reverend Robert Wilson James, was preaching, preaching not only to his white congregation, but also to the slaves who flocked in great numbers from the large plantations on the river to hear his preaching. With this uncle he lived, and under him he studied for the next year. As Dr. H.A. White well says, The zeal of this consecrated man of God most probably first kindled in young J. Leighton Wilson's soul the desire to give his life in behalf of the spiritual welfare of the colored race. In the autumn of 1830, he went to Mount Pleasant opposite Charleston to teach. The path of duty was still not clear. Spiritual doubts clouded his soul. Then God sent a Presbyterian clergyman by the name of Osborne, whose preaching, Wilson wrote, is plain, pungent, and zealous. God sent doctors Leland, McDowell, and Palmer, and Mr. Gildersleeve for a short meeting, and young Wilson wrote home, These four ministers are very precious to me indeed. The depths of his soul were stirred. He had a new and clearer vision of the face of his master, and as Paul asked, What wilt thou have me to do? So he asked, and the answer came, In January 1831, he entered the Theological Seminary at Columbia, South Carolina. His life had been given to the gospel ministry. Of his life at Columbia Seminary, space forbids our saying much. The seminary was just beginning, and he belonged to its first graduating class. There were six members in that class. Doctors Golding and Howe, both of blessed memory, were his professors. Of his ability and success as a student, we find no record. He continued his work as a Sunday school superintendent, working in what he termed in a letter, My Sand Hill Sunday School. But of his earnestness in prayer, there can be no question. His letters are aglow with his zeal and interest in prayer. And 50 years later, in a notable semi-centennial address at the seminary, he said, If the speaker ever knew what consecration to God meant, It was while he and this venerable father, Dr. Howe, were kneeling in prayer in the foundation room of the seminary building. To his memory, even in the deepest wilds of Africa, that southwest corner room has always been a place of peculiar sanctity. While at the seminary, the subject of foreign missionary work was brought to his attention by his friend J.B. Adger, then a student at Princeton. There seems to have been a deep interest in the cause at Columbia Seminary, for one half of his class offered for the foreign field. He gives, in a letter to a sister written at that time, some of the reasons that led him to become a foreign missionary. They were, the honor of being sent as an ambassador from the King of Kings to the nations of the earth, the fact that God had been so gracious as to make all of his own immediate family the subjects of grace, and because there is more to be done in those places where the Christian religion is unknown. His choice of Africa as a field may be traced back, as suggested above, to that year spent with his uncle when he saw him preach to those crowds of slaves who had come from Africa. Dr. Adger, writing 60 years after of Dr. Wilson's reasons for choosing Africa, thinks that the facts that it was so much neglected, and that so many of its dark-skinned children were held in bondage here, and the desire, quote, to exert some reflex influence upon the Christian people of his native state influenced him in his choice. He volunteered to the American board that then represented all the Protestant churches of America. When Dr. Wisner, one of the secretaries of the American board, wrote him in reply to his letter volunteering to go as a missionary and requesting to open up a new station in Africa, he said, am glad to have the evidence that you have made up your mind that, providence permitting, you will be a missionary and that you will go to Africa on a mission to which country by young men from the southern states my heart has been for some time set. On September 8, 1833, Harmony Presbytery met at Mount Zion, his home church. The main matter of business was to ordain the young student, who had been previously licensed by Presbytery at Walterborough in the spring of the same year. Crowds usually attended Presbytery, but this was a new and outstanding event, the ordination of a foreign missionary. So a great throng was present on this occasion. His uncle, Reverend Robert Wilson James, preached the ordination sermon, and his Reverend Professor Howe delivered the charge. That afternoon he preached in the grove to the negroes on the subject of missions of that service he wrote quote, "Afterwards an old colored man eminent for piety came to me and said he believed it was an answer to his prayers that I was going to Africa and that he would add to his prayers 1 dollar he is very poor for the spread of the gospel in that country there was an immense number present and deeply interested in the exercises of the day" When i was done preaching they came up one by one to shake hands with me but their weeping and sobbing became so wild and disorderly that i was compelled to take leave before i had told the tenth part goodbye such scenes affect me not a little the american board sent him soon after his ordination to the west coast of africa to select a location for the proposed mission liberia was then being colonized by freed slaves sent back to africa Wilson was offered the governorship of the colony, but told those making the offer that he was looking forward to too great a work in preaching the gospel to turn aside to a mere civil office. The Maryland Colonization Society was preparing to plant a new colony at Cape Palmas near the southern border of Liberia, and the plan of the board was to start a mission at the same place if upon examination it seemed suitable. The voyage was a long and rough one, when they reached Liberia, he visited a number of places, including Monrovia, and pronounced Cape Palmas by far the most suitable place for the location of the mission. The Maryland Society purchased a tract 20 miles square for their colony, and the natives there urged the coming of the mission. Wilson prepared a full report for the board, discussing, quote, the social status of Western Africa, the vice of its inhabitants, the prevalence of polygamy, The dialects of the land and the relation between the interior and maritime tribes. The return voyage was much quicker and more pleasant. He reached Boston in April 1834. A full report, both written and oral, was presented to the board. That body accepted his recommendation and established the mission at Cape Palmas. In May 1834, he was united in marriage to Miss Jane Elizabeth Baird, of Savannah, Georgia. She was a descendant of General McIntosh, of revolutionary fame, and a cousin of Dr. Charles Hodge of Princeton. He had heard much of her while at the seminary through mutual friends. He had gone to Savannah mainly to see her and had first seen and overheard her on Sunday morning in Sunday school teaching a class of Negroes. Their acquaintance speedily grew into love and after a few months they were engaged. She is said to have been tall, graceful, gentle, Very attractive, and of rare prudence. Their marriage was a most happy one, and she was to him through all vicissitudes a rare helpmate. In October, 1834, they went to Cape Palmas to begin the mission there. The voyage over occupied thirty days. The other members of the station went later. The situation of the station was most beautiful. The ocean was on the south, a salt lake eight or ten miles long was on the east. To the north stretched a plain of grass through which wound a stream, while to the west were seen the native villages, Fair Hope they called it, as beautiful a location as the eye could desire to rest upon, Mrs. White wrote of it, but death lurked there, and those jungles nearby were the germs of the dread African fever. Mr. and Mrs. Wilson were repeatedly racked with that fever, and several times were near death's door. In eight years, they saw at least eight of their fellow workers die. They were compelled to witness almost constant strife between the Negro colonists and the native Africans, and their safety was repeatedly endangered through their bickerings and battles. Wilson made a number of long and dangerous journeys into the interior, was in peril repeatedly from slave dealers and cannibals, and yet seemed to accomplish little through those journeys. But he accomplished much during those eight years at Cape Palmas. He reduced the Gribo language to writing, and published a grammar and dictionary of that language. He translated the Gospel of Matthew and John and six or eight small books into Gribo. He secured a great and wholesome influence over the natives. He educated more than a hundred young Negroes, and he organized a church of forty members. This work, when he left Cape Palmas, he turned over to the missionaries of the Protestant Episcopal Church. While at this station he saw the failure of the colonization scheme to Liberia. The thirty slaves his wife inherited were set free and sent to Liberia. These speedily lapsed into barbarism and were lost sight of. They sank back into the gulf from which they had come. He believed in the emancipation of the Negroes, but recognized that immediate and universal emancipation at that time would prove a curse, as all Negroes are not ready for freedom and would be worse off in that than in their present condition. His own two slaves were entailed and he found grave legal difficulties in their emancipation. He proposed to the board in Boston to take them and educate them, but this the board declined to do. He refused to have them sent away without both their own and their mother's consent, and though he made out certificates of freedom for them, they refused to leave and always remain there. John, one of the two, was their right-hand man during the war, hiding their horses in the swamps, and carrying a load of provisions from the farm to Columbia after it was burned to feed the needy there the fact that he emancipated these negroes caused some of the extremists in the south to regard him as a rampant abolitionist while the fact that they declined to leave the plantation led the abolitionist of the north to denounce him as a vile slaveholder the fact that he had even this nominal connection with slaveholding was made the occasion of repeated and vicious attacks not only upon him, but also upon the board. He offered to resign, but the board loyally stood by him, though it cost them much in the way of diminished income. The location of the station in Liberia was so unhealthy and so unsatisfactory in other ways that in 1842, after a thorough examination by Mr. Wilson, the mission was ordered transferred to the Gabon. This new location was 1,100 miles east of Cape Palmas. When the station was moved, Mrs. Wilson returned to the United States for rest and the restoration of her health, much depleted by her stay in that torrid and sickly region. He reached the Gabon on June 22, 1842. The native people gave a hearty assent to the planning of the mission. King Glass, the ruler, became a firm friend. A site was secured, high and commodious native buildings were erected, and the work of the mission was begun. His work on the Gabon that lasted for 10 years was a remarkable one. He mastered the Mpongwe language, being able to preach in it after nine months' study, and reduced it to writing. He prepared and published both a grammar and dictionary of the language. He translated considerable portions of the scriptures, published a volume of simple sermons, a small hymn book, and various elementary books. He further studied and learned the Batanga language, and published a vocabulary and phrase book of that language he preached over a large extent of country to great crowds having some 20 places where he preached more or less regularly he faced the great curse of strong drink of this he said quote the great day of accounts may reveal that the number of the victims of intemperance in africa greatly exceeds those of the slave trade end quote He was able to limit to a considerable extent the ravages of this curse in the regions where he labored. He wrought mightily in suppressing the slave trade. He studied this problem in all its relations. Its history, its methods, its horrors, its location, all became an open book to him. And when a strong effort was made in England to withdraw the British fleet because of its ineffectiveness, he prepared a paper of clearness and power which he sent through a wealthy merchant of Bristol to Lord Palmerston, the Premier of Great Britain. The Premier had an edition of 10,000 copies printed and distributed. This paper showed what had been done, what could be done, and what should be done. Lord Palmerston informed Mr. Wilson that after the publication of his article, all opposition in England to the retention of the African squadron ceased. Of this paper dr Wilson wrote later, when he introduced it as a chapter in his book Western Africa, quote, "The following article was written and published in England a few years since, with the view of counteracting efforts that were then being made to withdraw the British squadron from the coast of Africa, under the allegation that nothing had been effected in the way of putting an end to the slave trade." It comprises all the information on the subject that the general reader will care to have the writer has the satisfaction to know that the article contributed essentially to bring about a change in the mind of the British public, and most of his suggestions were adopted by the government and resulted in putting a decided check to the traffic. The system by which it was so extensively carried on in former times has been broken up, As a naturalist, he won wide renown. He became a member of the Royal Oriental Society of Great Britain, And on subjects connected with the fauna and flora of Africa became an established authority. His main contribution to natural history was his discovery of the gorilla, the largest known anthropoid ape. The first skeleton of this animal secured for scientific study was one presented by Dr. Wilson to the Natural History Society of Boston. It was a young friend and student of Dr. Wilson's, Paul de Chayu, who followed up the discovery and was the first white man known to have killed the ferocious and much feared animal the writer recalls as a boy reading with deep interest dr chayu's account of this animal named by dr wilson gorilla Quote, the underbrush swayed rapidly just ahead and presently before us stood an immense male gorilla he had gone through the jungle on all fours but when he saw our party he erected himself and looked us boldly in the face he was nearly six feet high with immense body, huge chest, and great muscular arms, with fiercely glaring large gray eyes, a hellish expression of face, which seemed to me like some nightmare vision. Thus stood before us the king of the African forest." Dr. Wilson gave to literature a book that Livingstone pronounced, the best book ever written on that part of Africa. It is called Western Africa, It gives the history of that part of Africa so far as it can be known. Its geography, including climate, natural divisions and scenery, products, flora and fauna. Its ethnography, naming the tribes and peoples and describing their customs, dress, and social conditions. It also contains a full description of the religion of the people. After this study of geography and history, there are closing chapters on the slave trade, the languages of Africa, Christian missions in western Africa, and a powerful chapter on the duty of white men in connection with missions to Western Africa. Though seemingly endowed with a constitution of iron, that constitution finally threatened to give way under the strain of Africa. He had endured that dreadful climate for 19 years. In 1852, he returned to Africa with a serious liver trouble. The doctors, both in Boston and New York, decided that he must not think of returning to Africa. After a summer spent in the mountains of western Pennsylvania, he returned to South Carolina, and spent the winter with friends and relatives in Sumter District. Harmony Presbytery sent him as one of its commissioners to the General Assembly of eighteen fifty three, which met in Philadelphia. Quote, "When the report on foreign missions was read before the Assembly, he made the principal address." End quote. The Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions at this Assembly asked for a much needed third secretary. Providence seemed clearly to answer that request. Here was a man familiar with the work in the field, hailing from the South that had no representative on the staff of the board, who had shown great executive skill in his field and had just delivered a masterly address before the Assembly. He was elected secretary, obtained a release from the American board, though they protested his going, and formally took up his duties in September 1853. He accepted the place and the work because he thought that Providence called him there, but his heart was in Africa, and there he would rather have been. Dr. DeBose says, quote, The writer, when not ten years of age, remembers hearing his mother say, Dr. Leighton Wilson lives in New York in a house of nine rooms, provided with every comfort and convenience, but he says he would rather be in Africa in a thatched native cottage built at a cost of $80. quote. Dr. Wilson's work with the Board in New York was many-sided. He was recording secretary. Mr. William Rankin, who was treasurer of the Board for forty years, says of his work, quote, "From the first he was the recording secretary of the Board, and these records are an enduring memorial." End quote. He was editor of the Home and Foreign Record, published by the Board. It was a laborious task and performed with alacrity. He did some of the work of a field secretary, visiting churches, presbyteries, synods, and general assemblies, and delivering addresses of great dignity and power. Of one of these addresses before the Synod of Alabama in eighteen fifty seven, Doctor C. A. Stillman wrote, The large audience was melted into deep emotion and could scarcely retain their seats. His contacts with the foreign missionaries were very helpful. He did little of the corresponding with them. But when they were home on furlough, many of them were guests in his home in New York, where they were entertained by him and Mrs. Wilson with unbounded hospitality. Their letters make mention of the kindly hospitality and sweet spirit of peace and love that home displayed. The influence he thus exerted was potent and powerful. He did much of the work of a candidate secretary. Each year he visited some or all of the seminaries to keep the claims of the foreign field before the students and to secure recruits from their ranks. A distinguished leader, writing years afterward, of one of these visits to Princeton Seminary said, quote, The impression, left indelibly engraved on my mind, took its original form from a casual remark made in my hearing, shaped afterwards by more than 15 years of intimate fellowship and co-working into its permanent form, viz, Dr. Wilson was the wisest and best man I ever knew, End quote but others besides students were reached for the foreign field. Through Dr. Wilson's influence, his family physician, Dr. J.C. Hepburn, heard the call of Japan and went there for a wonderful work as teacher, preacher, doctor, and translator. And others were led to go through his personal influence. Dr. John D. Wells wrote of his work on the board, He was a wise, strong, consecrated man, filling a large place as secretary of the board, after filling a large place as missionary in Africa, end quote. but the storm of civil strife was brewing here in our land early in eighteen sixty one He said to Dr J. J. Bullock, quote, "I pray God to avert the storm and save us from the hands of civil war, but if it comes, my mind is made up. I will go and suffer with my people." End quote. He attended the General Assembly of eighteen sixty one there he saw the spring resolutions adopted. He knew what the southern churches and presbyteries would do when this political paper reached them. So he resigned as a secretary of the board, bade its members farewell, settled his accounts in full, disposed of his home in New York, and returned to his own home in South Carolina to suffer with his people. He rented a small farm near his old home and made the little farmhouse his home during the four years of the war. Dr. Charles Hodge sadly said of his going, quote, our wisest man has gone out from us, end quote. 47 presbyteries separated from the northern church under the lash of the spring resolutions. Dr. Wilson promptly took steps to conserve the interests of foreign missions among the churches and presbyteries that had come out. He gathered at once a group of brethren, ministers, and elders in Columbia to devise a temporary plan for conducting this work. This group met in June, In August, representatives from a number of the Southern Presbyteries came together in the Atlanta Convention. This body advised Dr. Wilson to continue the work he had already begun in raising money for the support of missionary work among the Indians and to visit and direct that work. In October, he made such a visit, took counsel with the missionaries, and addressed the Choctaw Council. In December, a General Assembly made up of representatives of the 47 Southern Presbyteries met in the city of Augusta, Georgia. The first regular order of business of this assembly after its organization was the hearing of a report by Dr. J. Leighton Wilson on the subject of foreign missions. The assembly faced the great duty of foreign missions bravely. Quote, Surrounded by a cordon of armies, in a country itself on the point of being one of the world's theaters of most terrific war, the church quietly looks forth on the world as its field, and quietly, fearlessly, and earnestly prepares for its present and its future labors. End quote. It swept away, under the resolute guidance of Thornwell, the unscriptural machinery of boards and replaced it with a simple committee directly responsible to the General Assembly and acting only as its executive agent. It accepted the call of the work among the Indians as the only work it could then do. It lifted the vision of the Church to the future when it hoped to go forth to China, Japan, India, Siam, and especially to Africa and South America with their peculiar claims. And it closed the series of resolutions with that great passage that I will quote in part, quote, Finally, the General Assembly desires distinctly and deliberately to inscribe on our church's banner, as she now first unfurls it to the world, in immediate connection with the headship of our Lord, His last command, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, regarding this as the great end of her organization and obedience to it as the indispensable condition of her Lord's promised presence. End quote. Dr. John Layton Wilson was elected Secretary of Foreign Missions, and the committee was located at Columbia, South Carolina. The newly elected Secretary was grandly equipped to rightly mold and properly launch the work of the new church. His eight years' experience with the board in New York had shown him how to plan and improve the inner working of the committee. His experience on the field had shown him the things to be sought and the things to be avoided in the establishment of new missions and new stations abroad and how to deal with the workers in the field. He was heartily in sympathy with the desire to plan all the machinery of the new church according to the pattern shown in the mount. With it all, he was, as Dr. T. C. Johnson finally says, quote, A man of massive virtues, profound sagacity, practical methods, great executive ability, fruitful piety, and marked consecration to the cause of missions. End quote. He cared for the Indian missions through the dreary and discouraging years of the war, except when prevented by the blockades and barriers of armies. In 1863, the work of domestic missions was likewise placed upon his shoulders. And a little later, the task of evangelizing the army was laid upon him. He did it all wisely, sanely, heroically, until the Confederacy fell. When the war between the states ended in 1865, there seemed little left save faith and hope. The cities were, many of them, in ashes. The farms were desolate and deserted. The currency of a nation was waste paper, Military despotism strove in every way to place the heel of the black upon the neck of the former master. Following the wreck and ruin of war came the greater curse of the carpetbag era. As Dr. Debose finally wrote, The fathers had fallen asleep. The generation of young men who had escaped the sword had missed a collegiate career. The theological seminaries were closed. The colleges had lost their endowments. Few were left to lead in public prayer. And the songs of Zion were sung by mourning women. End quote. Above this desolation towers a great figure. Both home and foreign missions were for a time under the care of Dr. Wilson. Quote, in the Southern synods, no one has ever equaled him in the power for good he exerted, and we believe it is impossible in the future for any man to obtain the position of commanding influence that he exercised during the ten years following our civil struggle. End quote. He gathered the discouraged churches into groups. He secured for them ministers of the word. He raised and dispersed the funds necessary to support them. Sustentation, church erection, and later evangelism alike felt his fostering care. The region west of the Mississippi especially appealed to him and was helped by him. With love and tact and untiring toil, he builded the waste places of Zion. When he turned over the home mission work in 1872 to his colleague, Dr. Richard McElwain, it was in a splendid condition of efficiency and organization. But his great work was for the cause of foreign missions. Story upon story, the church guided by this wise master builder erected the great structure of our foreign mission work. First came the Indian work that was already going on within our bounds. Next came the work in China Begun by Reverend E. B. Insley, and to which went one half of the first graduating class of Union Seminary after the war. Messrs. Houston, Helm, Stewart, and Converse went out largely at the call of Doctor Wilson. Miss Christina Ronzone, a teacher in his home, went back to her native land, Italy, through the influence of Doctor Wilson, to labor in and with the Waldensian Church there, and to found our third mission. Rev. H. B. Pratt and family went out in 1869 to the United States of Columbia where our fourth mission was kept up until 1878. Two noble men from the class of 1869 of Columbia Seminary, Messrs. Morton and Lane, went out to found the mission to Brazil. They were largely influenced in going by the words of Dr. Wilson to the Columbia students. This was our fifth mission, In 1873, Rev. A.T. Graybill and wife organized the mission to Mexico, founding there our sixth mission. The same year, the Greek mission was taken under our care, with Rev. M.D. Kalapothekis and several colleagues as our missionaries. This made our seventh mission. And in 1885, the year that Dr. Wilson laid aside the task, the mission to Japan was founded as our eighth mission. As far back as 1865, our assembly had directed, quote, The executive committee of foreign missions is especially authorized to direct their attention to Africa as a field of missionary labor peculiarly appropriate to this church and with this view to secure as soon as practicable missionaries from among the African race on this continent who may bear the gospel of the grace of God to the homes of their ancestors, quote. And in 1881, the assembly authorized the executive committee to establish a mission in Africa whenever in their discretion the way was made clear. But the longing of the great heart who had given so much to Africa to see a station there was not to be fulfilled while he was here. It was not until 1890, four years after Dr. Wilson's death, that Lapsley and Shepherd founded on the Congo our ninth mission. Dr. Wilson visited the missions in Indian territory and Brazil with great profit to them and the cause. Every phase of his work as secretary was well done. He visited the seminaries and by his addresses and personal interviews secured many recruits. His judgment of men was in the main excellent. His reports to the General Assembly were able, clear, and satisfactory. The addresses that he delivered to our church courts were strong, noble, and convincing. His dealings with the missionaries in the field were very satisfactory. They loved him, trusted him, and enjoyed much his regular letters. His judgment was excellent, and he made few mistakes. He secured, in spite of the poverty of the land, generous gifts to missions. Over and over again, in time of need, he went to the larger churches with a special appeal and rarely failed to secure large offerings, and thus, in the day of small things, he laid broad and deep foundations on which our present magnificent foreign mission work stands sure. He toiled on at the work that had been moved from Columbia to Baltimore in 1876 until his strength began to fail. In 1884, he declined re-election on the ground of failing health, but the assembly again laid the burden upon him with words of confidence and affection. But the next year, he insisted upon being relieved, closing his letter with these words, quote, The Undersigned cannot bring this communication to a close, brief as it is intended to be, without expressing to this venerable body and through it to the church at large the profound gratitude he feels for the kindness and confidence that have been extended to him during all those years that he has had the principal charge of this great cause. The remembrance of this will be the chief solace and comfort of his remaining days. The Assembly thanked him in warm words for his great work, They relieved him from the burdens and responsibilities of the office, but they kept him as secretary emeritus with a salary. And so one morning in the fall of 1885, he came into the mission rooms at Baltimore, told his colleagues that he must lay down his work, bade them a cheerful and affectionate farewell, and with firm tread passed out of the room to take the train for his old home in South Carolina. Dr. Wilson stamped his influence indelibly upon the foreign mission work of our church. I have written to a number of our leaders in foreign mission work, asking them to give their opinion as to the leading principles controlling those who have charge of that work. From their answers, I have selected the five that seem to the most of them to be distinctive and controlling in that work, and every one of the five was held, taught, and used by our first great secretary. 1. Christ is the head of the church. And growing out of this supreme fact is the dominant duty of loyalty to Him, a loyalty that means obedience to His last command, a loyalty that recognizes that every true church of Christ is by virtue of its very organization a missionary society, and a loyalty that should make every member recognize that He is under solemn covenant to help in the carrying out of the Great Commission. It was in response to Dr. Wilson's first report to our assembly that the resolutions were adopted from which I have already quoted. They inscribed on our church's banner in immediate connection with the headship of our Lord, His last command. This was the great end of our church's organization. Long before Dr. Wilson had written, Foremost among the arguments is the command of our Savior, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And if we go forth with singleness of purpose, in reliance upon the promises of Him who hath commanded us to go, we need have no anxieties for the final result. End quote. 2. The preeminent duty of the Church in its foreign mission work is the preaching of the Gospel. Education, medicine, printing, all forms of social service, important as they are, take a subordinate place to evangelism. In the First Manual for Foreign Missions, Dr. Wilson gives as the foremost duty of the missionary quote, His business is to preach the Gospel. In his great book, Western Africa, he writes, quote, If the tribes of Africa are not reclaimed from their ignorance and idolatry by the preaching of the gospel, I solemnly believe that they will be left to all the misery of perpetual heathenism. And he says this in connection with a discussion of the benefits of the suppression of the slave trade, of modern commerce, of mechanical and agricultural arts and schools, except as they are brought forward as the handmaids of a preached gospel. No wonder our present foreign mission manual so finely says, The great end of missionary life and service is the preaching of Christ and Him crucified to the non-evangelized peoples. All forms of missionary work must be subordinate to that end. end 3. The leadership of the Holy Spirit must be sought and followed in our foreign mission work. His guidance is of absolute necessity and must be continually sought in prayer. Dr. Wilson believed tremendously in prayer. In his letters, he often called his loved ones to prayer for Africa. At the first assembly, he secured the call for a concert of prayer to be held on the first Sabbath of each month in all our churches. In 1880, it was at his request that the assembly recommended, quote, that the last Wednesday of October be observed as a day of prayer for the continuance and increase of the success of our mission work, end quote. In a letter about the Shanghai Conference, he says, quote, The opening sermon by Mr. John on the necessity of the Holy Spirit was much to my liking. I think there is a great tendency among missionaries to rely too much on the ordinary machinery for promoting evangelistic work and too little on the Holy Spirit, who alone can build up the kingdom of Jesus. Born in prayer, nurtured in prayer, it is no wonder that those in charge today recognize by prayer the leadership of the Holy Spirit in this work and that a circle of prayer by every member of the committee begins every committee meeting, and they spend from a half hour to one hour in prayer seeking the guidance of the Spirit. 4. The importance of placing upon the native Christians and church the task of saving their own people and land should be recognized. As one of our secretaries, well says, quote, the structural aim of our missions is the establishment of an autonomous church. This means self-leadership, self-government, self-support, and self-propagation. End quote. For all of these things, Dr. Wilson stood, and all of these things he stressed. Even of Africa, he wrote, quote, All that we can reasonably hope to accomplish will be to give Christianity a firm footing there, to train up men on the ground who may be relied upon to carry the glad tidings of salvation to the darker and more remote corners of that great continent. End quote. In his first manual for foreign missions, he provided that, quote, The missionary shall not become the settled pastor of a church, but shall establish native pastorates over all such churches as soon as suitable persons can be found. So also he should aid in establishing a presbytery when the native churches are prepared for it. The reason for educational institutions as a part of our foreign mission work, Dr. Wilson held, and our church has ever since held, is to provide an educated native ministry and to Christian leadership in all the walks of life. Five, obedience to Christ's command and foreign mission work is the hope for the church itself here at home. A disobedient church cannot expect the blessing of Christ upon its own life. As the assembly at Augusta, largely under Dr. Wilson's influence said, quote, obedience to Christ's last command is the indispensable condition of our Lord's promised presence and is the only thing which in connection with the love of Christ can ever sufficiently arouse her energies and develop her resources so as to cause her to carry on with the vigor and efficiency which true fealty to her Lord demands, those other agencies necessary to her internal growth and home prosperity, End quote. Dr. Adger wrote of him shortly after his death, quote, I know it was also a leading motive with him in devoting his life to foreign missions, to exert some reflex influence upon the Christian people of his native state in extending and deepening their interest in the spiritual condition of their slaves, End quote. Thus we see how the influence of this man is woven into the very warp and woof of our foreign mission work. What Dr. R. L. Dabney wrote years ago is still true, quote, The Church to this day is feeling the sacred influence of Dr. John Layton Wilson in her foreign missionary work, its wonderful power and progress are largely the result of his teachings, his sustained energy, and statesmanlike plans. End quote. Under the oaks of his old home, surrounded by loving friends, Dr. Wilson lived until July 13, 1886, when he fell on sleep. A vast assembly followed him to his last resting place. His lifelong friend, Dr. James Woodrow, preached the funeral discourse. And the General Assembly of the next year left this record, quote, Like a shock of corn fully ripe, he was gathered into his Lord's garner, leaving behind him a name whose fragrance is as ointment poured forth. As long as the history of the church shall be preserved, the memory will be cherished of his massive virtues. He moved before us with his heart of oak, a great leader of the sacramental host of God's elect, with joy that he was spared so long to the church on earth. With joy that he has been gained to the church in glory, this assembly pauses for a moment to drop a tear for their own loss upon his grave. End quote.